First Peter chapter 1. That's where we are. I'm going to read, I'm going to back up um, and begin reading from verse 1 all the way through verse 9. We have talked um, together in here so far through the first five verses, but they really do go together. So I'm going to read all those together. And a reminder, what's this for? Yes, we're not where we're supposed to be, right? We're aliens. This is not normal attire, but I guess at some point I'm going to have to stop wearing this because this will become, you'll get used to this. I don't know how that'll work. But for now, just a reminder, as we go through this, remember Peter has written to a group of people who are aliens. They are out of their comfort zone. They are not where they're supposed to be. And he's teaching them how to live in the midst of that. So we read these words. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Let's pray together as we begin. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for... Um, the blessings that we find in it. We ask now that your spirit would open up our hearts and our ears, our minds, that we would understand, that we would grasp the truths that you have for us. And ultimately, God, I pray that you'd change our wills, that we might be your people. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, if, if life were easy, no one would ever have invented the microwave. All right, we're, we... We think that life is hard. We think that we need something else to help us through. And so in our God-given ingenuity, we've, we've created things like automobiles and microwaves and diet pills and electric heat. Right? If, if life wasn't difficult, we wouldn't need any of those things, would we? But in our ability to overcome discomfort and pain and frustration... Um, we fight against those things that fight against us. We've done that from the very beginning, from the invention of fire and the wheel <laughs> to our modern-day conveniences of electricity and <coughs> diet pills. Right? We, we, just, we, we want life to be a little more perfect than it is. Um, I don't have a a simple solution, but Peter does have a solution for a, a different way to fight against the things that fight against us. In one sense, it really is easy. A lot of things that are in here really are easy. It's overcoming the inertia of 
but I don't want to do the, the thing that God requires of me. I'd rather do it on my own. I'd rather figure out a different way to overcome what fight against me than the way God wants us to do it. So we begin in verse 6. Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice. In what? Well, what he's just talked about in the last three verses. The fact that, that God has caused them to be born again, this new birth. That He has secured for them a salvation that is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. That He has protected them by the power of God. And Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice. There's this, this assumption that they're doing that. There's this, this idea of, I don't need to wonder. I know because of where you are and what you're going through, the truths that I've just said, you rejoice in. Is that better? Is that working, Phil? Good. I'm back. You didn't know I went anywhere, did you? Could you explain why we need batteries? Why we need batteries? Because we... Re- it seems silly that we're in a small room and everybody can hear you, but why are we doing this? We do. We record this. And if you ever, for some reason, want to go back and listen, then you can go to our website, which is on the bulletin, and you can uh, click on media, and those sermons are there forever and ever. That's why. That's why. That's why we interrupt. That's why we interrupt. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Phil. Um, and he does a great job of keeping things running smoothly. Um, so, yeah, I know some of you and, and maybe several of you have uh, over the years kept kind of a journal of things to be thankful for, uh, things to praise God for. You kind of make these long lists of, of just things in your life that are wonderful, that are worth rejoicing about. But my challenge to you really is, do you rejoice in this permanent thing? There's a lot of things that I rejoice in day in and day out. Um, Rejoice in my family. Um, I I rejoice in, a lot of the times, the weather around here. (laughs) But all of those things, all of those day in and day out things that we rejoice in, what do you do when... When that's not there? What do you do when the kids aren't obedient? What do you do when the weather is not like you wanted it to be? What do you do when, when life is fickle and doesn't give you what you want? What do you do when something else breaks and another bill shows up and you just go, I don't, I don't feel like rejoicing or I can't rejoice in, in those temporary things? Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with, with praising God and rejoicing in in the blessings that that fall on the just and the unjust. But what about the blessings that are yours? Your salvation, your new birth, the permanence and the security of your inheritance, God's protection of you for eternity. Even Jesus, when He sent in Luke 10, he, he sent the disciples out two by two and they came back and, and they were just tickled to death that the spiritual forces were subject to them. They were rejoicing that they could speak a word and a demon would flee. That they could lay hands on someone and, and they would be healed. And they thought, this is the best thing since sliced bread. This is wonderful. 
And Jesus said, don't rejoice that the powers are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Because someday it might not be so. Someday that that power that I have given you now for a time, I may withdraw for another time. Your, Your spiritual high moments, those mountaintop experiences won't last. And if that's what you're rejoicing in, what do you do when you're in the valley? Jesus says, don't rejoice in those things. I mean, that's great. We're glad that that happened, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Peter says the same thing. In this you rejoice. Is it part of your daily life? Will you make it a part of your daily life? Will you commit that when I walk out these doors, I'm, I'm going to somehow schedule in a time in my day where I simply rejoice and give thanks and praise God for these indescribable gifts of my rebirth, the permanence and promise of my salvation, my protection in God. Will you you decide that that's going to be part of what I do? God gave us a tangible, physical reminder of His goodness to us On the night before he was betrayed, he gathered his disciples together knowing what they were going to face. And he said, I I want you to do this as, as often as you can. I want this to be a part of your communal life together because you need this reminder of my mercy. And so we do that together. We're going to Stop. We're going to continue looking at First Peter in just a moment. We're going to stop and allow this to be a catalyst to the rest of what we talk about because we need this. We need to be reminded that God's great mercy is, is ever-present and He gave us this wonderful, tangible reminder in the metaphor of His body and His blood and the bread and the fruit of the vine. And so we stop. And so would you, just for a moment, where you are, would you stop and, and first of all, would you thank God for His indescribable gifts? Would you rejoice in the truth of what He's done for us? And then in a moment we'll, we'll pass out the bread and the fruit of the vine and we'll partake together. But would you take just a moment where you are and, and, uh, and praise God for what He's done? problem is, it's not always easy. I mean, it's easy to say, okay, if you rejoice, that will help you overcome the life that you're in, that life where you're not where you're supposed to be. But even Peter recognized that it's not always easy. Even though, he says in the middle of verse 6, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So it's not just that we rejoice, but that we rejoice despite our circumstances. Do you do that? Do you, will you do that? Will you make it a part of your life that I'm going to, I'm going to put, draw a line in the sand, I'm going to put a stake down, I'm going to rejoice 
and what God has done for me despite my circumstances. He says, even though you've been distressed by various trials, that word trial is is the word that is used throughout the New Testament. Sometimes it's the word test. Sometimes it's the word temptation. Ultimately, big picture, it's a word that means I'm going to do something or something's going to happen to reveal what's really there. It's like we take a piece of gold and we put it over fire to see what's really there. If, if, If we took this ring and we applied heat to it, we'd find out how much gold it really is. Now, at least in America, they, they require jewelry to be stamped. It tells you what carat gold it is, and so we, we hopefully we could trust that, but we could, we could test this by fire to see if it's right. What percentage of gold is it? What's really there? What's underneath the surface? That's what tests and trials and temptations are. Just like when I used to teach and I would give my students a test, I want to know what's really there. Well, they can turn in homework all day long, but it, I don't know about when you were in high school, but by the time I was teaching, what happens in high school is you get to school and then someone's paper gets passed around everybody copies it. All right, then you turn that in, right? The answers are all the same. So we give a test to find out what's really there, what's really inside, and then the truth comes out, right? Or maybe you've interviewed for a job and they actually wanted you to perform a certain skill. You may have turned in a resume that looked really nice, but can you do what you said you could do? And so they give you a test, maybe a a typing test or something else. Can you do what you say you can do? It, It reveals what's really there. Temptation works the same way. There's this test. The goal of that is not really positive. You may not think tests and interviews are positive, but... Ultimately, they really are. They're, they're trying to allow you to show what you can do. But, but a temptation wants you to fail. Because it believes that there's something under the surface that's different than what you're portraying to the world. The same idea. It's, I'm going to do something to get what's really inside to rise to the surface. And so Peter says... You rejoice in the permanence of your salvation even though you're undergoing these tests, these trials, maybe even temptations, and maybe other stuff is bubbling up. Regardless of of whether it's a test or a trial or temptation, it's distressing. I don't know about you, but interviews, even if they're, even if they're aligned for, for me or for you to look good, they're still distressing. Paper and pencil tests, even if I'm fairly confident, they're distressing. And certainly temptations are distressing. And for these people who were not where they were supposed to be, they were living in a pagan culture and their Christianity was, was on display for everyone to see. I don't know what those trials they were undergoing but we assume it had something to do with their faith, and so their faith was being tested. What's really underneath? What's really there? And I would counter that rejoicing and making that a daily part of what you do continues to refine what's really there, continues to solidify what's really there, 
so that you do pass the test, you do get through the trial with your faith intact and unscathed and unharmed. But then there's this other word that causes me trouble too. Rejoice in your salvation. We do that despite our circumstances. Because trials are necessary. It says in the middle of verse 6, even though they're necessary. You ever think of trials as... I don't want them to be necessary. (laughs) I mean, I kind of look at them as there's there's these things that bother me. And if we could just get rid of them, and that's kind of why we pray, Lord, come quickly. How long, O Lord? And he says they're necessary. But he tells us why. So that the proof or the genuineness of your faith may result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The reason we undergo trials is so that the genuineness of our faith may come out. Same reason we would put gold to the fire. We want the genuineness to come out. That's the example Peter uses. Just like we refine gold. It's like we put it to fire to test it. Your faith is being tested and that's necessary because in the end we want it to result in praise and honor and glory. And then we need to ask ourselves two questions. Who is getting the praise and honor and glory and who's giving it? Well, the who's getting it, I I hope is clear. I think throughout Scripture we see that God really is the only one worthy of getting our praise and honor and glory. He's the only one that has done anything ultimately to deserve that. You read through the the book of Revelation and and over and over again in in the throne scenes, there's these, there's people and there's creatures and there's multitudes that are praising God and ascribing to Him honor and glory, among other things. And and as our faith is tested, and as the genuineness of our faith shines through, that ultimately results in praise and honor and glory to God. But by whom? Well, I think by us. We, we come to the end, and and we have walked this life and then the veil is removed and we see what we could not have even imagined. We think maybe we've got an idea of how wonderful it'll be because we, we imagine, I imagine life without all the hardships. But I don't think we can begin to grasp the wonder and the glories of His presence. Not just minus the hardships, but how wonderful it actually is. And so I think we will give Him praise and honor and glory, but it's not just us. It's other people that look at our faith, that see our faith, and because they see us in trials and temptations and tests, and they see the genuineness of our faith as we continue to rejoice in Him, they too will bring Him honor and glory and praise. And I, I think we see that because Peter, in the first two and a half chapters of this book, is, is laying out this, this big truth of what God has done for us. And he closes this section, if you'll turn over to chapter 2 just for a moment, he closes this section in, in verse 12 of chapter 2 with this same idea. 
Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. And we've been talking about that. Our, we, we're living in this foreign place so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, these trials that you're undergoing, you're undergoing slander. The Romans were, were very good about looking at Christians and calling them atheists because they didn't worship the emperor cult. They didn't follow along and, and do... And they said they were, they were unpatriotic. You don't participate in the things that all Romans participate. You're not doing as Romans do. And so they were slandered. They were called bad names. They were undergoing trials because of their faith. The things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, because you have all along continued to exhibit faith and rejoice in your salvation, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. It's not just that we'll bring God honor and glory and praise. Other people will necessarily do that as they see us practicing and living out our faith. The trials that we undergo are necessary to, to purify our faith. Ultimately, it's, it's to show the world not just the genuineness of our faith, but to show what God is really like. We undergo trials and temptations and tests, not just to show the world the genuineness of our faith, but ultimately to show what God is really like. We serve a God who we really believe loves us and has made a way for us and has established eternity for us and protects us along the way. So how do we do that? Very practically, Peter ends this section in verse 8, And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice. comes back to that same theme. With joy inexpressible and full of glory. The greatest trial or temptation that you probably face, that you probably ever will face, Ultimately, the greatest trial we face is how do we love someone that we have not seen? How do we rejoice in someone that we don't see, that I can't reach out and feel and touch? Ultimately, that's the greatest test. And Peter says you rejoice in that one. That's, that's what gets you through the trials. And it's not just that we do that sort of half-heartedly. That I wake up, okay, he said I need to rejoice in, in God and my salvation, so I'm going to get up in the morning. Thank you, God, for saving me. Now, let's get on with the day, right? We rejoice, he says, with joy inexpressible and literally glorified. Your version may say full of glory. One day we will be transformed from what we are now into glorified bodies and everything we do will be perfectly right. Our praise will be perfect. And he says, you should begin practicing that now. Are you giving a, a half-hearted rejoice? Is it just something that you do to check a box? Or, or is your joy really inexpressible and full of glory? 
Do you meditate on the wonders and the grace and the mercy of God enough that it sort of just bubbles out of you? That's our call. That's the challenge. In one sense, that's the trial. Not seeing Him will we rejoice. Will we love Him? Will we respond to Him? And then ultimately, the question is why? And I would say it's good for you. Rejoicing in God, rejoicing in your salvation is good for you because here's what happens. We respond to life in in one of two big ways. We respond either in an earthly fashion or we respond in a spiritual fashion. Life slaps us upside the head and we either respond rejoicing, as Paul says, these light and momentary afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory. We We either look at life from a spiritual perspective or we look at life from an earthly perspective. And from an earthly perspective, I think there are two really big ways to respond. We respond either in despair. Life over and over continues to beat us up and we respond in anxiety or fear or despair or depression or even anger. I can't deal with life and so I'm responding to life negatively. Or we look at life and we say, I can handle this. The other side of that is is pride. I can deal with this. Yeah, life, bring it on. I can handle it. Neither one of those depends upon God. And Paul in his letter to Philippians, beginning in chapter 3, repeats the line that Peter repeats, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord, does it several times. And in the context of chapter 3 and chapter 4, when Paul says rejoice over and over again, The context of all of chapter 3 is dealing with pride. And the context of the beginning of 4 is dealing with despair and anxiety and and, and life that comes upon us and we don't know how to handle it. And so ultimately, rejoicing is good for you. Because it helps us internally overcome the tendency either to pride or to despair. And allows our faith then to shine. Rejoicing gives us hope when we're prone to despair. And rejoicing keeps us humble when we're prone to pride. Rejoicing gives us hope when we're prone to despair. Because we remember that God has given us a salvation that is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. He's given us a new birth. And rejoicing keeps us humble when we're prone to pride because we remember that it's God who caused us to be born again. We didn't do anything to earn it. So as Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write this to you and it's a safeguard for you. It's a safety net for you. It's a safety mechanism. It's guardrails. It keeps you in between the ditch of pride and in between the ditch of despair. It's good for us. And ultimately, it's good for other people because when other people see the hope that is within us, as Peter says in chapter 3, always be ready to give a defense to those who ask you a reason for the hope that is within you. When we are walking in a world where we don't belong with hope and joy and gratitude, to God, people will notice and they'll ask, 
What's different about you? And so rejoicing is good for us. It's good for other people. It keeps us walking in the way that we need to walk. So my challenge to you as we we think about this passage, if you don't already, will you begin the habit of spending time each day rejoicing and praising God for your salvation? That He has caused you to be born again. You have a new birth, a new identity. That He has given you this inheritance, this salvation, which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. And He has protected you by the power of God through Christ Jesus and the Holy Spirit that dwells within you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your gift of Your church. This family that we get together together with and come together. Just a wonderful blessing that You allow us to have brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage us. And yet, God, that pales in comparison to the gift of Your Son, to the promise and the permanence of our salvation, to the fact that we can look forward to with joy one day seeing You face to face. And as John says, we will be like You, for we will see You as You are. We long for that day. In the meantime, God, as we face trials and temptations and tests, I pray through the power of your Spirit that you would, as you have promised, protect us. Remind us of the weapons that we have to fight against that in rejoicing in the truth of who you have made us to be. Thank you for your love for us and your grace and your mercy. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. And you are dismissed.